You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. As Shelby said, it's wonderful to worship with you. We are continuing our series on biblical stewardship, holding on with open hands. The big idea is, uh, what does the Bible say? about how we should use all these things, our gifts, our, our family, right? What do we do with that? How do we hold on with open hands? How do we hold on in such a way where we know it's God who is the giver of good gifts, and we are simply stewarding what God has given? So we continue that today. I'm not preaching that. I want to explain why. Uh, I haven't preached so far in the month of January. Uh, several reasons, just so you know kind of what's going on, and then I'll invite Dean up to preach God's Word. One, I, I did this last year. I spent a lot of time in January doing admin. Uh, let's just say I've seen too many spreadsheets in the month of January. It's not my favorite, but it's kind of those things that kind of stuff that just kind of needs to get done. So I've been spending time doing that. I've been spending a lot of time praying and thinking about Redemption Hill Church and the vision and future of Redemption Hill Church. So just coming before the Lord, doing a lot of journaling, um, reading the Word and simply trying to think through as we approach the vision meeting on February 7th. Um, I want to give you the details of where I think the Lord might be leading us um, as we go forward into 2021 and beyond. So I've been doing that. Uh, number three, uh, I got other preaching engagements as well. So I've been utilizing this time to say, for example, I'll be going to Kansas City in the future here. And then number four, um, as you know, we'll be going into the book of Ephesians in February. And so oftentimes what I do as I prepare for uh, preaching through a book of the Bible. So I actually do a lot of pre-study, and so that's been going on as well. And there's been other things, of course, but I wanted to explain to you, hey, why, why hasn't um, the main guy been up there? Uh, that's, that's part of the reason, just, just so you know. With that said, I've been extremely grateful, and I am grateful for men who are able to preach in my stead. Um, we've seen that uh, over the last two years of Redemption Hill Church, and we've seen that already, and we continue to see that um, in this month. So just thankful for that and for guys who are willing, who, guys who work full-time, who are willing to take time out of their extra time, right? Uh, oftentimes late at night preparing for a sermon. So um, I'm grateful for these men. So Dean, I just want you to come up and uh, preach God's Word, and I'm eager to sit under God's Word. So thank you. don't want to knock that over. So, can, we, can everybody hear me? How's the sound? Are we good? Can we hear me? Well, it's going to go in my pocket. Good afternoon, and it is truly an honor to be here and to stand up here with uh, exercising actually an awesome privilege before God and before His people and to be able to teach His Word. Um, I begin with the story of the Christian movement in the first half of the 20th century in China. There were many important leaders in that movement, 
among which was a man by the name of Watchman Nee. And it was in 1937, he was preaching in Manila in the Philippines, when he got word that Japan just engaged in a full-scale invasion of the mainland of China, his country. He immediately went to Shanghai to get his wife, and they settled in Hong Kong. And as the war unfolded, Watchman Nee was called to speak at a Bible conference in England. And Bob Laurent recounts this story in his book, Watchman Nee, Man of Suffering, that Lee was invited, Nee was, excuse me, Nee was invited, there is a Watchman Lee, by the way, Watchman Nee was invited to lead this conference in prayer and was inadvertently given a seat next to a speaker from Japan. As Nee rose to pray, there was palpable tension in the air. Remember, Japan has attacked China. The war is ongoing. No one in attendance ever forgot what they heard. The Lord reigns, Nee prayed. Nothing can touch his authority. It is spiritual forces that are out to destroy his interests in China and in Japan. Therefore, we do not pray for China. We do not pray for Japan. But we pray for the interests of thy son. We pray for the interests of thy son in China and Japan. We do not blame any men, for they are only tools in the hands of the enemy. We stand for thy will. Shatter, O Lord, the kingdom of darkness. For the persecutions of the church are wounded thee, wounding thee. Amen. And the thing that sticks out and the phrase that sticks out in that prayer, we pray for the interests of thy son. And those were not just words in a prayer for Watchman Nee. For in 1949, China fell to communism. And Watchman Nee lived out those words in a prison from 1952 to 1972 until his death. Watchman Nee was passionate about the interests of the sun. Now, in the last few weeks, we've been discussing this theme of stewardship. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.2 that a steward must be found faithful. And this concept of stewardship is rooted in the Greek word oikonomos, or is it oikonos, namos, is that how it goes? You're the Greek scholar. Oikonomos, oikonomos, I just mispronounced it. And that has the idea of managing a household while the master is gone. And that entails the food, the, the property, the land, the vineyards, and even the servants. But there's a sense that you and I, if we're followers of Christ, are stewards of the interests of the Son. 
His kingdom, his mission, his people, his message, his gifts. And Peter was passionate about the interests of God, the interests of his son. In fact, as it was read there in the text just a while ago in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter wants God to be glorified in everything through Jesus Christ. He wants all glory and dominion to be his. And in the text that we'll be looking at today, Peter gives us practical insight on how we can achieve this end. These exhortations here in 1 Peter chapter 4 happen in the context of a church that is undergoing much suffering and is beginning to experience persecution. Peter wrote this letter in 63 AD to churches that were scattered out through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there are many parallels to those times that we ourselves find ourselves living in here in America today. For Peter knew that persecution was increasing and intensifying and literally was on the eve of the Neronian persecutions that would literally cost Peter his own life in Rome. In just a few years, just a few short years. So, as we look at the text, Peter wants us to understand that since the end of all things is at hand, we as believers should live faithful lives in sober-minded prayer, sacrificial love, hospitality, radical hospitality, and using our gifts for the building up of the body as good stewards of the varied grace of God to the end that God would be glorified. In essence, so that the interests of the Son would be accomplished. And so I begin with the first point that Peter brings here in verse 7. We, what is the impetus of faithful living? The impetus of faithful living. And, and I believe Peter is clear. He says that the end of all things is at hand. Now, verse 7 is tied back to verse 6 by an untranslated conjunction, day. And in verse 6, we read that the gospel is being proclaimed to all people. Why? Because that's tied back to verse 5, where it says that everyone will give an account of their life when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So in Peter, not only in this epistle, but in the second epistle, we have a tremendous amount of eschatological language. He is talking about the end of all things. In fact, earlier in chapter 1, he talked about the last days. 
It says in verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The last days which began at the first advent of Christ and ends at the second advent. This is the common theme of all of the New Testament writers. Let me give you another one in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, in case you're not convinced that the last times and the last days began at the first advent of Christ. Listen to this in 1 John 2, 18. John writes to his children, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John and Peter wrote these words some 2,000 years ago. Now, that brings us to the point of what is, in fact, the next event. Peter is not talking in terms of chronology, but theology. He is talking about the consummation of all things. And the thing that Peter is saying to the churches in Asia Minor is, Jesus Christ is coming back. That's the next thing on the calendar. The impending return of Christ when Jesus will vanquish all evil and establish a new heaven and new earth, restoring all things to himself, completing the final phase of his redemptive plan for his people. We think of it in terms of the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. We are in the kingdom and the kingdom is to come. But the point I would make to you t this afternoon is that eschatology, which literally means the study of last things, is not some subcategory that we put down here, but it is central to Christianity. It is central to Christianity. I want to read from Jurgen Moltmann, who's helped me on this. He says, eschatology must not be thought of as something which is found only in, say, books like Daniel and Revelation, but is dominating and permeating the entire message of the Bible. From first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology. Christianity is hope. It's forward-looking, forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. It's not just a part of Christian doctrine. Es the eschatological outlook is characterized, characteristic of all Christian proclamation and of every Christian existence, and of the whole church. And it guards, a proper understanding of eschatology guards us against the extremes of speculation and charts and date setting on one end, trying to read current events into eschatology, and then on the other end to a passivity and a a dropping out of society altogether while we sit by and wait for the second coming. Martin Luther was once asked, if Christ were to come today and if all things were to come to an end, what would you do? And he said, I would plant a tree 
and pay my taxes. He was ready. He lived his life in the light of the second coming, and he was just ready. And Jesus calls to us to that readiness. Turn to Luke chapter 12 briefly. Luke chapter 12. Listen to the words of Christ as he teaches us regarding his return. In verse 35, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. See, there's a time that Jesus will return and he will knock on the door And if a person is doing something that they should not be doing behind those doors, they would probably long for a delayed tactic written into the system somewhere so that you don't have to open the door immediately. But the question that is posed to each of us is, when Jesus returns, will you be able to open the door right away? He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake When he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at at his table, and he will come and serve them. Literally wait upon them. Jesus waiting upon his people around his table. And if he comes in the second watch or, or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the practical implication. And Peter tells us in his final epistle, in some of his final words, that the coming of Christ will be like a thief in the night. And he says, since all these things are to be dissolved, he's talking about the earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The second coming of Christ is a time of terror for those who do not know him, but it is a time of exceeding hope for those who do know him. That's why John writes that every man that has this hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. So the impetus of faithful living is the second coming of Christ. And now Peter gets into the instructions of how we are to faithfully live in the light of that with the word therefore in verse 7. Therefore, based upon the fact that the end of all things is at hand, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, or as one translation says, for the purpose of prayer. The realization that history is coming to a close should drive God's people to dependence in prayer. And Peter ties two words together there, self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled has the idea of a steady, solid, and consistency, not given to fanaticism, not given to emotionalism. Sober-minded 
has the idea of being alert, as we just saw there in Luke chapter 12, a readiness, a mental discipline, reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says that we want to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And Peter writes from experience, because if you remember the story in, gospel, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, Jesus himself taught Peter this. Jesus said to Peter, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as Jesus is praying, anticipating his death upon the cross, he comes back and he finds Peter and his disciples asleep. Life lesson for Peter, it was only shortly thereafter that he denied Christ before a servant girl in the midst of the arrest of Jesus Christ. Peter says, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Prayer is the key expression of the fact that we belong to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, that God has given us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You can come to God as your Father and cast your burdens upon Him. Cast your cares upon Him. Speak of your dreams. Speak of your fears. Bear your souls before God. And yet, sadly, prayer is often one of the toughest things that we do. Paul Miller, who has written a great deal on the subject of prayer, suggests that as much as 90% of people in evangelical churches don't have a regular praying life. He, he, in these studies, he found that many of these same people could articulate Orthodox doctrine. But he suggested that in many cases there is no functional, ongoing conversational relationship with the Father. And as things get tough, and as things get tougher, for the end of all things is at hand, prayerlessness will not stand against the increasing hostility that's coming that will come against the church, and it is coming against the church. The end of all things is at hand. Judgment is impending. Maligning is multiplying. Guard your prayer life. Guard your prayer life. There is a reason in this particular text, G Peter puts it first. And pray for the interests of thy son to be done in central Iowa and in America and throughout the world. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Let that be your prayer. Let that be your cry. As it was for Watchman Nee. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter not only calls us to this sober-minded, self-controlled prayer, but above all, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to, hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here we see the priority of loving earnestly. In, in, a, in chapter 1, he talks about loving the brethren earnestly, fervently, another translation. So there is emotion involved, but there's also willful sacrifice. It's sincere. It's tough. It's not shallow. I got this from Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary. He talks about this word earnestly from the Greek ektenes. It denotes a stretching or straining and pictures a person running with taut muscles exerting maximum effort. Ancient Greek literature used the word to describe a horse stretching out and running at full speed. It's a strong word. And it is the defining mark of a true Christian. And it is a defining testimony to a watching world. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this will the world know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So it is central to our testimony. It is the calling of the church. And you and I have both seen it, that social media has proven to magnify the worst features of many who claim to name the name of Christ. And it has become a cesspool of toxicity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. I saw a post the other day. Pastor Tim, Timothy Keller, a man that has helped me a great deal over the years, was being, having to defend himself from verbal attacks because he didn't address a certain protest. And he literally had to um, right, that the, the reason that he did not attend this protest be, is because he was on his back after much chemotherapy fighting pancreatic cancer. And this is the maliciousness that happens that people don't understand. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is, is patient. It, it bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And and so, it's, it's truly sad, but, I mean, Timothy Keller was gracious in his, his defense, but he just wanted to clarify. And as times get tough, if, as persecution increases and intensifies, you and I are going to need each other. The more time we spend together, as in any family, there will be offenses. Under stressful times, particularly as things get tough and stressful. That's why it says there in 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. Love, and that's a quote from Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrong. It doesn't brush it under the rug, but there's a loving res- response. There's, there's a gathering together to deal with things. And when it's not dealt with, there's forbearance. Colossians chapter 3. I'll read from there. You don't have to turn there. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes these words. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive putting on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We love because He loved us. We forgive because He has forgiven us. And we show forbearance because we were once His enemies. And He, by His mercy, made us alive in Christ. Which leads to the next point there in 1 Peter chapter 4 regarding hospitality. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is one of the more difficult things that one can do. Particularly if you have deadlines and you've got a schedule to keep. And we don't want that interrupted. And that's why Peter uses the word without grumbling, the phrase without grumbling. The word hospitality comes from the Greek meaning to love, the love of strangers. And back in that day, there were no hotels, and travelers were dependent upon those who would open their homes up. It was dangerous out there. And it is a strange irony that I'm talking about hospitality today because we're in the midst of shutdowns and social distancing, but... I believe this is an opportunity for the church because we, you and I both know that these shutdowns have led to a great deal of loneliness for many people and a great deal of, of depression and, and despair and hopelessness. And this is an opportunity for the church of Christ as things start to open up, to open up our homes. They belong to God. We're just stewards. We're just managers. I'm reminded of the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in English literature. She was also a radical lesbian feminist who despised Christianity, who would say in her own words that Christians were the subject of her pity and wrath. And of course... Her perception of Christianity was somewhat jaded because as she marched in the gay pride parades, all she had were the signs that told her that she would burn in hell. And that was her exposure to Christianity. So she would never don the doors of a church. So it took a man to bring the church to her. His name was Ken Smith. He's a pastor of Reformed Church. at Syracuse. And he reached out to her and began a correspondence with her. And Ken and his wife 
literally brought Rosaria Butterfield into his home and they began conversing and eating together and talking with a dialogue. Dialogue, that's a foreign term today, by the way, a dialogue. And through the course of time, Rosario came to a faith in Jesus Christ through the loving hospitality of the Smiths. Our homes must be an open place for the wounded, for the broken, for the, those that are lost as we once were. Our churches must be hospitals for the broken that need to be healed. We're all sick patients in need of the great physician. You and I just know that what the eternal medicine is to save the sick soul. It's not those who are well that need a physician. It is those who are sick. May our churches, beginning with ours, be that hospital that invites them to come in. The people that were spoken about last week that can give you nothing in return. Look at verses 10 and 11 there. We talk about, we're talking about the gifts here now because the church is, in fact, a place where you and I are to use our gifts. It is a hospital, and it is a place where we are using our gifts. As each one has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards, there's that word again, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter is categorizing the gifts in two general categories, the speaking gifts, which encompasses many different things, and, and the serving gifts. If you want a more exhaustive list, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can look at Romans chapter 12, and you can look at Ephesians chapter 4. But each one of us has at least one gift, and the purpose is for the building up of the body of Christ, to, to edify in the strength that God provides. It's called a, a varied grace, which in the Greek has the idea of multifaceted, many-colored, but each one is essential. Each member of the body is essential. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verses 4 through 7, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities or ministries, not all are cut the same. Not even all the teaching and preaching gifts are cut the same. But they are all gifts and they're given to us by the sovereign spirit. Thus, there is no occasion for boasting. And they are to be exercised with humility and with gratitude for God's gifts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he talks about those who speak, that they speak the oracles of God. 
John Calvin said that when a man climbs up into the pulpit, it is as though God may speak to us by the mouth of man. He doesn't come with his own message, but he speaks the oracles of God. Serving is used in many places throughout the, the New Testament, and we get the, the word deacon from that word. And in many places, it's been used of providing financial support, providing meals, visiting prisoners, administration, organizing. All of it is to be done in the strength that God gives. And the intent, which is my final point, the intent of faithful living is God's glory. Look at verse 11. In order that every, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The Westminster divines had it right when they said, they asked the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so in our prayers, in our love for one another, in our hospitality, in the exercise of our gifts, it is for His glory. It says that in all things, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So that we honor Paul's admonition to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. And so Peter makes that point loudly, and then he closes with a doxology. He says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So all of the scholars are debating, so then to him, who does that refer to? Does that refer to God the Father? Or does that refer to Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Glory, all glory belongs and dominion belongs to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus Christ will return. We know that he has already won, and we know that he shall win. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. May God grant each of you and myself the grace until that day to live faithfully for God's glory and for the interests of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.